Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment comes from the motet, Kom Jesu Kom, BWV 229. Johann Sebastian Bach died on July 28, 1750. His health was already declining, but it was made worse by a surgery that he got to try and fix his blindness. It was done by John Taylor, who is now known to be a complete charlatan and was responsible for the sickness and a lot of deaths of a lot of people, um, just was not a real doctor and totally snowed a bunch of people, um, including Bach and George Frederick Handel. This guy is responsible for a lot of sickness and death of, uh, of many people in that time period, and an infection is in the eyes is really what did Bach in finally and in the year 1750, 65 years old. Bach was blessed with a relatively long life and a lot of time to create a lot of amazing musical compositions, but it does kind of make you wonder what else he could have done if this botched surgery had not happened. During his life, Bach wrote a lot of music that had the theme of death in it. We talked a lot about the St. Matthew Passion, but there's also the funeral music, the motets and cantatas that have to do with funerals and things like that. And it's just part of church life to have to be talking about and experiencing death of people and the comfort in knowing about the promise of eternal life that comes after death in the Christian faith. And all these things are very forefront in Bach's mind as he's creating this music. This particular piece, Kom Jesu Kom, is a choral motet, probably written for a funeral, which is a setting of a poem by Paul Timich. There's no biblical text in here, but the poem is really heavily based on the Bible, especially a passage from John chapter 14, talking about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Komm, Jesu, komm. Mein Leib ist müde. Come, Jesus, come. My body is weary. Die Kraft verschwindt je mir und mir. My strength wanes more and more. You kind of have to wonder whether or not Bach thought about all this music as he was going through the pains of knowing that he was basically dying. I wonder, did he think of the previous funeral music that he'd written? 
Um, was he was he maybe just more saying uh, the prayers that he knew um, from his youth? I, I wonder sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Gotis Zeit, that cantata was written when Bach was very young. Still a very powerful work about death. Yeah. So we know he could do it without being an old man, so to speak. But, I mean, like we said in that episode, the people of his time had a very different and more intimate relationship with death than we do now, where we shuffle a lot of those themes in our daily lives aside, whereas people in that time period would have just been more comfortable in their own skin thinking about uh, that kind of thing on a daily basis and grappling with it. So, hard to say to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, the idea of suffering and sort of like welcoming death as a release and as also like, in a Christian faith context, a sort of like entrance into eternal life in heaven, that's got to be at the forefront of his mind here. The rest of this text here for the first movement uh, of, the, of this two-movement work is, I long for your peace, the sour path becomes too difficult for me. The word sour, zaura, it's like in German it sounds like the English word sour. And that's going to be my moment uh, that you heard a little earlier. If you if you caught that, that's what the that's what the choristers were singing there. The word sour, sour, like the sour path. Then it says, "Come, come, I will yield myself to you. You are the true path, truth, and life." So the way, the truth, and the life. These are really common um, names for Jesus that he lays out in the Gospel of John. It's right after, in fact, it's right after the Lord's Supper, and it's the moment where Jesus tells Peter that Peter will betray him. And Peter says, Lord, I would never do that. And as we saw two weeks ago in our episode, Peter does do that. He realizes that he's done it because Jesus even told him, yeah, you will, and it's after the rooster crows twice, you'll know that you've done it. And sure enough, that happens. So we know that Jesus keeps his promises. We know that God keeps his promises. This is all seen in the Bible. This is all... This is all laid out very, very clearly in, in the history of the Bible. So when Jesus promises that he's going to come again, he'll raise himself from the dead and he will, he will come again. And that stuff is all like very, very firm in the belief of Christians today, that there will be the second coming. And that's what a lot of this music is about. Yeah, there's a certain comfort to be taken by religious people in this in these themes, right? Because sure. they have this sort of idea that life may be difficult. There's something there's some sort of opportunity to, to relax afterward. I think that's something that's kind of very generally speaking a comforting theme in human experience, even outside of religion too. The idea yeah. that life can be difficult. Religion shouldn't be like just a way to control people into not into being subservient just because you know they know they're going to have a better life at their afterlife but it also works in a non-religious philosophy too with just like the idea of eternal eventual rest but um, for those religious folks of this time it really was a source of comfort that they have this doctrine that shows them that it's actually a very specific thing right it's it's a 
through a certain personified figure of Jesus that calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Those are like his, some of his names. Right. Right. And this is sort of a, a call to people who believe in God, but who might not believe in Jesus in, in this gospel where Jesus says that, no, that is me. Right. And in, in this, in this chapter, he says to, uh, to his disciples, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Right. And he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, what I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So he want, he tells them, you know, the way to the place where I'm going. Okay. And so this stuff is, is really core of the Christian belief, right? The idea that eternal life does exist for those that believe that Jesus is the true son of God to save them. Right. And the idea that some people might not believe in Jesus, he's sort of exhorting you right now is saying like, if you believe in God, or maybe even if you just believe that there's a higher power, like believe in me too. That's the way, right? He says it's the way. And this is, there's a thing called Pascal's wager. You heard of this Christian? Yeah. Yeah. It's a doctrinal thing. It's, it's like, it's basically says like, well, you could choose to not believe in Jesus, uh, Jesus's message here and, and become a Christian. Right. And then, um, if you die and if that's true, then it didn't matter either way. You, you just died. There's no heaven, right? There's no eternal life. There's God and Jesus are not really divine, whatever. And then it's like, or you can choose yes to believe it. And then if it's true, then great. Yeah. Then you were saved, right? You don't really lose anything except maybe intellectual pride on this earth to just like go ahead and take that leap of faith, right? Mm-hmm. And it's an it's an interesting thing because I think a lot of people who are reticent to sort of go into the Christian faith are for a lot of so many complicated reasons. And and one of those might be just like being hurt or broken by the church in the past. Um, one of those reasons might be just that they don't see anything worthwhile for them and they're not seeing that end game of, you know, like if, what about if you die? You know, everybody does, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen then? Um, yeah. There's, there's so many, there's so many reasons, but, but that Pascal's wager is really an interesting one. Cause it just says like, well, why not so allow yourself to be open to the idea? And part of it is because if you are open to the idea, then it comes with all this baggage, I guess is one way of putting it, but of like, of belief. I mean, there's a lot to that. Like mm-hmm. if you are a Christian, then you're called to do certain things. Right. And not that all Christians are perfect at doing that. I mean, that's part of the problem of being human. But yeah. yeah, it's an interesting, it's a whole interesting theological thing. And I kind of want to keep the discussion a little closer to Bach than to ju- just theology today. But right. it, it is, it, it's really key to the message of this piece, right? There's something innately human about about longing for a figure that that the figure of Jesus does fulfill, you know? Um, yeah. Just because of the certain shape of that, you know, emotional or spiritual hole in a lot of people's psyche and mm-hmm. that's like there was, I think, Paul, one of his journeys, and that's later in the Bible, that's like goes to some Greeks and goes to some people who are not Christian. They have their own gods. And he says, you know how you have this one, I see you have this one altar to this to the unknown God. Yeah. Well, I got you covered. Like, I know who that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's interesting that, it's interesting that like we as humans sort of like come with a built-in spiritual hole to fill that, like void to fill in our in our souls that these people have obviously found a great deal of solace in in this Christian theology system, you know. 
Yeah, and the idea, there's a lot of, in, in the modern world, and I mean modern in the sense of like this kind of became a big worldview thing in the early 20th century, so not really not really super recent and <laughs> relatively, but like the idea that humans don't, this is a Nietzsche thing, right? Like humans don't need God anymore because, and his whole thing was calling it God is dead. It's a very pr- provocative thing to say, right? He, he, humans don't need that anymore because we used to just basically be like sort of superstitious creatures that needed to fill that spiritual void. Mm-hmm. But now, now in this new age of the early 20th century, we have all this technology and all these other reasoning, all this other philosophy, and we don't need that spirit. We don't need religion anymore is what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And it's clearer than ever that that's absolutely not true. And it's And I'm not saying that religion is like what everybody knows that they need i mean but the thing is is that it's all way more complicated than that that was like too reductive of a of a thing to to really like i mean maybe it maybe it made sense to him at the time but it doesn't anymore yeah it also kind of depends on your personality how much of this you you really feel the void in you that could be filled by something like this but but it does seem pretty honestly true to say that it is a human condition yeah and the question is just kind of whether it's whether it's uh, a natural thing for that to be a, a void in humans or whether it's supernatural. And that's kind of the, the whole thing with Pascal's wager, isn't it? Exactly. Like it, well, what? which is it? And are, will you allow yourself to not know? Or will you allow yourself the sort of vulnerability of being like, you know what? This might, this might really be, this whole like, uh, this whole Jesus thing might really carry some water here. It'd be worth it for me to check it out, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. And, and Bach, of course, being like a lifelong Christian, that really wasn't at play. I don't, I think he was pretty much, you know, always a believer basically, at least from, from early age. But yeah, we do, we do think that you'd guess that almost everyone in his community was a practicing Christian. But then, I mean, a lot of the cantatas and the, clearly the things that were being preached on and read from the Bible were the themes of those weeks were like people are straying away from God and yeah. stuff like that. So it really, it, it's not like just because they were all Christians, they didn't struggle with oh, yeah. their faith. It's you part know, of the human condition. It's part of, of Christianity as well is to oh, grapple yeah. continually with, uh, with that. It's, there's no shame in that for sure. So there's that sour path is the word that, uh, the word that we keep coming back to here right and that's my moment of Bach right for today because I really love this moment of this piece in particular when we first start the piece on the words come Jesus come I mean that is a great moment too and just the starkness of the way that those those chords sound and then there's silence it's just it's really brilliant So the first kom, the word come, is sung by choir one. And the second one is sung by choir two. And that's right, there are two choirs. And if you watch this video by the Netherlands Bach Society, you can see them split up, choir one standing on the left as you're viewing it, choir two standing on the right. If you don't really pay attention to that, the parts just like work together so well that you would never even think about it if you're just kind of not looking for it. But try and look and look for it specifically. You can hear it on this example, but it really is a thing that you have to look for too. But let me just play for you that beginning again, and you'll hear three 
chords, right? Three, um, the word kom three times. The first one is choir one singing it. The second one is choir two. And the third one is both choirs together singing it. See if mm. you can pick that out. It is almost imperceptible in audio format. I mean, you can kind of hear them switching sides, but it's, it's hard. But it, on the video, it is really cool, and it's a lot more striking. And if you ever, listeners, if you ever have the chance to get to a concert where a piece is programmed for a double choir, yeah. man, you got to go to that concert. That's the, be- that's the most profoundly amazing auditory experience for your ears to have these stereo things going on left yeah. and right and stuff like that. It's just so cool. And Bach wrote stuff like that quite a bit. Yeah. It comes from an older style of uh, a little bit, a few generations before him that people were doing in Italy a lot where they had these glorious church balconies on the left and the right and the back and stuff. And there were some absolutely spectacular experiments done at that time with double choir, triple choir and stuff like that. Yeah. And here he almost like perfects that genre in a way because it's just done so like elegantly like Bach always does. Then we get this ending of a phrase that I love on that word müde, which means weary. And you could imagine this being sung in English, the word like weary. And the way that he sets that, it just like floats into this weary. And the way that the note resolves at the very end of weary is is just beautiful. Yeah, much like the English word weary, it almost has its pulsating strength right on that first part of the word. Yeah. And on these measures, these measures wind up being like strong, weak, and like tense, relaxed. Yeah. You know, German, it like lends itself to that so well. And, you know, translations aren't always like perfect or do they not perfectly convey the original German, especially if they're trying to like make it fit in a meter and rhyme and stuff. But but German really does lend itself to that because it's very expressive with the the thick consonants. And it's also like, yeah. like you were just talking about, Christian, it has like those pulses, like müde. Like in French, um, which is a lovely language to hear, there there's less stress put, put and then unstressed. There's less of a difference between like stress and not. Like strong, weak, strong, weak. Those mm, do, yeah. It doesn't happen in French, really. Right. And in German, it does really strongly, even more so in, than English, I think you could argue. So this kind of music really becomes that, that push-pull thing really happens, you know? Yeah, I'm sure there's some like dissertations written on that, but that's an absolutely fascinating thing that I'd love to talk to a linguist about. You yeah. know, like how the music, how the way they wrote music was affected by the way that their language is which I'm sure, I guess people have probably studied stuff like that before, but yeah. So this is why this is my favorite moment here on Der Saure Weg, the sour path, right? The sour path becomes too difficult for me. You can hear the basses enter, and this happens to be the second choir basses right each choir is split into four parts soprano alto tenor bass so there are eight separate parts that happen so the first thing you hear is der zara that's basses on choir two then you hear the basses in choir one come in right away after 
and it's the same notes again. So it's like their measure is basically repeated by them. But during that time, the, the second choir basses are already on to something else. And that's how we, he makes this counterpoint. Yeah, completely overlapping, right? Completely overlapping. Every single measure, a new part comes in. Measure one, bass. Measure two, the other bass. Same, same notes. Measure three, tenors, so higher. Measure four, the other tenors. Measures five and six, it's the altos. And seven and eight, it's what you think. It's the sopranos, then the sopranos. And if you listen to it all in a row, you can hear that. So what I'll do now is I'll play that all in a row, and we'll, I'm going to play it on the piano to, to sort of guide your ear there. Now let's hear that without the piano helping and try and listen for those entrances of all eight of those little entrances. You're hearing dear Zara Vake, but when fig happens, that's at the same moment that the next part is entering. Yeah. This is just not how you, this is not how normally how fugues work. You know, like normally they don't have as many as eight parts, but also they don't have like an echo on the same pitch right afterwards. Like, yeah, almost kind like of, a cannon. It's unusual for Bach. Yeah. And it's because of it. It's because of the specific layout of the two choir thing. It's a two choir thing. Yeah. And you know, it's funny is that I almost. It, when you first hear this this moment, it's almost like you accidentally had two tabs open on your computer yeah. playing this moment because one of them, because the bass is coming again and the tenor's coming again. Yeah. And the, on the same notes. Because you don't hear that in Bach often. or it, Yeah. You know, the, yeah, you don't hear, you hear so much counterpoint where, where a new voice will come in with a similar theme, but it's it's always, or almost always as we see here, on a different, starting on a different pitch or like at least a different octave. Mm -hmm. And here, no, it's the exact same. And that wonderful biting interval, that sour interval. Yeah, exactly. So that interval there is the diminished seventh, which is unusual in a relative sense, like it's not that common, but Baroque composers would use it Handel uses it in the Messiah on the and by his stripes we are healed part. Uh, there's there's a, there's some examples mm, Mozart Requiem. Yeah, Curie, Mozart Requiem, which which sounds a lot like the Handel one. Yeah, kind of a <laughs> rip off of the. Uh, yeah, I think an not, intentional not rip off. Yeah, but, an intentional yeah. homage is a nice way to put that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that interval, yeah, it, it always means distress or something um something painful, right? The interval yeah. always means that something painful is happening. Yeah, it's so it's hard to sing, first of all. Yeah. So it's like Sol Le Ti Do right. The interval there, Le Ti is tricky to sing. Yeah. Sour, you might say. Yeah. Sour path becomes too difficult. For me, 
So then the second movement, and there are only two movements here. The second movement is uh, sort of a peaceful little closer. It's pretty short. Sounds a lot like a typical Bach chorale, and it feels like that. It's um, some editions call it an aria, but that's it's a little confusing because it's not a solo thing, and it mm -hmm. sounds like a chorale, but it's not based on a hymn tune. And, but anyway, whatever it is, it's beautiful. <laughs> you know, it sounds it sounds like it's harmonized like a chorale. And it talks about that even though my lifetime rushes to its end, my spirit is nevertheless prepared. It shall soar with its savior, since Jesus is and remains the true path to life. I'd like to think that Bach was at least thinking about this piece, you know, when he was when he was realizing that um, things were going wrong with the complications of the surgery, you know. Had been around 20 years, maybe almost 20 years, since he had written it, and he'd written a lot of things. Um, but, you know, he probably thought of these kind of pieces that he had written. I bet he did. So at the Last Supper... After Jesus told them that they know the way to the place where he's going, then Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's what this whole thing is about, right? This whole thing is about Jesus being the way. And like we were saying before, Christian theology rests on, on that, right? It rests on that there's no way to God except for through Jesus, especially talking about Jesus' sacrifice, right? Because we do deserve, according to Christian theology, we do deserve death for sins. A sacrifice needs to be made, right? And that sacrifice was made by God's Son because out of God's love for us, He sent His Son. And it's like, well, that seems... How's that love? Because he's sending his only son, right, to be sacrificed. But that's how much that, in Christian theology, right, that's how much God loves us. And this all harkens forward. I was going to say harkens back, but it really harkens forward to the very end of the Bible, or at least the way the books are arranged in the Bible, is Revelation. is the last, the last book here. It says... Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down to the middle of the great street of the city. No longer will there be any curse. There will be no more night. And then this part, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Look, I am coming soon. And then one of the very final lines of the Bible says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Right, And so that is just this exhortation again, right, by God's people. Kom Jesu kom.
and now, here is that moment, with the text, Dir saure fig fiert mir zu schwer, from the first movement of Komm Jesu Komm, the motet by Bach, BWV 229. Actually, this one was picked by my wife, Heather. We were looking for the right piece to do for this particular week, talking about Bach's death. We wanted to do something funeral-related, and this one stuck out to her as uh, something that really works. Great pick. If this introduction to the musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the motet. Please see the link in the episode description. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe and follow us on social media. Christian, what do you have planned for episode 28 next week? We'll look at a particularly biting part of the opening chorus of the cantata, Herr, Deine Augen sehen nach dem Glauben. BWV 102. Nice. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Thank you.